Well, amen, welcome. If, if it hasn't been clear already, we love kids, okay? <laughs> kids up here, kids there, kids everywhere, okay? Kids all in the other building. Uh, if you don't know this, uh, the building next door, it's got the VHQ venue. Some of you are watching in the VHQ right now. Uh, other than that, we gave the rest of the building to the kids, okay? We used to have our offices in there. They kicked us out, okay? We love kids. My, oh, I've got three kids, okay? I love kids, love my own kids. I got three kids and they are all in the kids ministry. And, you know, because I'm here every Sunday and because... I serve every service, I guess you could say. Uh, they're, they're in the kids' ministry a lot. When we had two evening services, they were there for both services. Sometimes people say, if I serve and I go to a service, then my kids will be in kids' ministry for two services. It's okay. They'll be okay. In fact, they'll love it. My kids are like double snack. Uh, you know, I get to know more teachers. I get to meet more, more, more kids. I know the answers to the questions, and I look like the smartest person in the room the second time around, okay? So they love that. And we just love, you know, Blair and Todd, what you got to see there, and, and this is really cool, you got to see couples serving together, right? And you got to see something really powerful, which is I would love to, I would like my kids to see me serving. And so that, that's a powerful story. Let me tell you, we are already out of space in our kids' ministry again on Sunday mornings. Uh, now, now, here's what you need to know. Churches that came back and didn't bring their kids' ministry back, national average, churches that, that came back but didn't bring their kids' ministry back, their attendance is 15% what it was beforehand. Not 50, 15, one five. And you go, well, why would that be? Well, it, you know, because we don't want to bring the kids here and watch our kids at the church as well, right? It's like you want the kids to re-engage and have their experience. So we are incredibly grateful for Leslie and for Melissa and for those who serve in the kids area. We are, because we're out of space and out of room, we're going to be starting Sunday, January 3rd, adding a full kids ministry at night as well. So right now we just have childcare night, but it's mostly a capacity issue. Do you, guess what? When we were up and running four services and all the kids' ministry before COVID, it took somewhere close to 75 to 100 volunteers every week to serve and run the kids' ministry. That's a Southern Baptist church, okay? That's how many people that is. That is your average Southern Baptist church, 75 to 100 people running the kids' ministry. And so let me just, let me just invite you back if you're watching online. And I'm not, again, I'm always not talking to the people who can't come back. But if you can come back, or maybe you're watching for the first time, uh, you know, we wanna get to know your kids and so much of it, you know, the kids ministry serves two purposes. It frees people up to truly worship, okay? Uh, there was a lady one time, this is before COVID, she came and uh, she started crying in the service and I thought, you know, was my sermon that good? You know, no. Was, was worship that good? Was that what it was? She said, I'm crying because this is the first time I've been in church without my kids for months. <laughs> and I started crying. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. So, so there's just, and then secondly, it really gives the kids an opportunity to say, it's not childcare over there, guys. In the, it's not childcare. It's, it's we're not watching them, we're helping them worship. We're, we're, we're trying to teach them the gospel in, in age-appropriate ways. We're praying with them. And, and we're trying to create an environment. It says meet Jesus and make friends in there. Why is that? It's like, man, because we want them. You heard me pray about this earlier. We want our kids to grow up going, man, the church is the greatest place on earth. I love my church. I love the God of my church. I love Christ. I love the Bible. And that's how it's been my whole life. And everybody I know in church loves church. Wouldn't that be incredible? So let's pray. And then we've got a lot of work to do. We're covering about three chapters today. Okay, I talk fast, but not that fast. We'll see how it goes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for kids. We really just, we live in a culture that does not welcome kids. Dogs are everywhere, but kids are often nowhere to be found. Lord, we thank you for kids, and they're made in the image of God, and they can understand the gospel, and they are such a delight and such a joy. We pray for parents, Lord. We want to just come alongside and partner with parents as we raise the next generation. And I just want to take a unique moment, pray for anybody, whether it's online or in this room, who is struggling right now with infertility. And it's painful. It's painful to talk about kids' ministry. It's painful to talk about um, baby dedication because it's a reminder that in this season, 
you know, we can't get pregnant or we can't stay pregnant. And we just, we just pray for a special grace for them. Lord, we know that you are the God over the womb. Lord, we, we, just, we just pray for the, 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 the woman's heart and man, but the woman's heart is broken today in, in grieving the fact that they can't have kids. We pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2018, American Airlines had a new idea. And, you know, they were figuring out, how do we deal with complaining customers in the air? Because, you know, when you're 30,000 feet in the air, what are you going to do if you're complaining? It's like, how are you going to help that person? You know, if, are you complaining about, you know, the screen doesn't work? Some kid who's not my kid is yelling on the plane. Can somebody do something about that? My food is, you know, my food is cold. My coffee's not hot enough, whatever it is. Well, what American Airlines did is they told their flight attendants, they said, you know, hey, guys, you're going to have an app and a program that if somebody complains, you can reward them with, uh, you know, free miles or whatever else. And so they would do all that. Well, what do you think happened? What happens when you reward complaining? People complain more, okay? Uh, so they started complaining more and more, okay? And then the airline stewardess started complaining that the people were complaining. So they went and they complained to the head, the head honchos at American Airlines. And then the American Airlines used the app, uh, the internal app that they use, to do two things, to both reward complaining, and if you complain too much, to not reward you. What's the whole point of this? There's just a lot of complaining going on, right? <laughs> People are complaining or they're complaining about the complainers. Isn't that our life? Well, it's interesting. If you'll turn to Exodus 15, verse 22, we're gonna see three stories of complaining because unfortunately, God's people complain. And you go, what do they complain about? Well, unfortunately, all the same things the world complains about and a bunch of other stuff that doesn't matter. That's what we tend to complain about. And has COVID made complaining better or worse? Worse, that's right. <laughs> right? It's like, you think, about, think about it. I mean, we complain about everything's canceled. I can't travel. You know, some people, they, they complain about their rich problems. Uh, you know, while they're, I, I was talking to a guy. <laughs> he said, I can't, this is right in the middle of COVID. He says, I can't believe it. The club, country club, is not letting caddies carry bags anymore right now. I'm going to have to take a golf cart. I said, I am so sad about that. I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that's a real story that I, ha- that I had with somebody. Um, and so, you know, but we, we can complain about anything, right? Like we're going to see in the stories today that they complain about food and water and, and the most basic necessities of life. But because, you know, we're, we kind of take a lot of that for granted, we complain about a lot of other things. And so what I want us to see is, is what's going to happen today is they're going to move. This is why I love the Bible because the Bible is so exciting. It's so exhilarating because it actually helps describe our life and we, we need help. And what it says is that Christians are really good at singing together, but they struggle to live together, Right? They're really great at singing songs. They're not that great at living life. And they have to go from singing songs to living life. And you only can sing songs, I mean, I mean even if you sing all day, you can't sing that often, right? You, you gotta live your life. And what happens is in verse 21, you have Miriam, and Miriam's got her tambourine, and she's hitting it on her knee, and she's dancing with all the ladies. That's, that's verse 20 and 21 of, of, uh, of the end of the song. And then it moves right into, they're gonna need to learn to live and trust the Lord in the wilderness. And it leads to three stories of where they're, again and again, the word you're going to read in your Bible is grumbling, or if you got the KJV, murmuring, okay? But we would just say complaining, and complaining shows itself in a lot of different ways. It shows that you're, you know, you're irritable, and you're impatient, and you're grumpy, okay? All of that is a heart of complaining. But first, before we even get to the complaining, I want you to see what led to the complaining. What led to the complaining was good leadership, which is very interesting. Sometimes when there's strong leadership... Sometimes when there's clear direction, sometimes when you take people someplace, they don't want to be taken there. And I want you to see this. If you'll look at me at, at Exodus 15, verse 22, we're introduced to Moses the leader. And you have to know this. There are many books that have been written on Moses as a leader. Now, Moses is primary a, a mediator. 
He brings the word of God to people, and then he, he basically represents God to people and people to God. That's that, he's a mediator. But he's also an incredible leader, and, and some of you are going to have an off, awesome opportunity to lead. Not all of you will be big L leaders. You won't have big platforms. You won't have lots of employees, but you could all be a little L leader. You could be influential among your friends, among your peers, among your family, among your community group. And these principles that we see in the life of Moses are transferable. And here, here's the first one. Look at, look at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. He made them set out. If you circle things, circle made. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to do what we all want to do. They just want to sit near the sea and sing songs about what God did in the past. How many churches, that's what they want to do. They want to talk about what God did in the past only because it's comfortable and it's over and we can see the results. So they sing this song. It says, Moses had to make them get out of here. It's like this strong language. Well, what is leadership? Leadership is taking people places they don't want to go for reasons they don't want to know. I know it sounds like a really tough, that, that is exactly what leadership is. It's taking people places they don't want to go. I mean, think about teaching your kids things. You want to teach your kids things. It's like, hey, do you want to learn math? No. It's like, they don't even want to learn it. Well, do you even want to know why you'd want to learn math? No. And that's basically us the rest of our life. I don't want to know. I don't want to go places that are hard. And I don't even want to know why I'm going there. Now, now notice what Moses doesn't do. He doesn't poll the people. We learned in America recently, polls don't work, right? <laughs> it's interesting because well, think about it. Why don't polls work? We, we don't know all the reasons. There's probably 50 reasons why polls don't work. You know, are the people biased who do them? Do they ask the wrong types of questions? Is the poll sample wrong? But we know a couple reasons why all polls are wrong. Very rarely we get a very accurate poll. And no matter political or not, people lie. People just, and they don't even always mean, they tell you what they think you want to hear. They tell you what they think they think that others think. I mean, I mean who knows? Uh, that's one reason that polls don't work. Another reason polls don't work is people don't know what they want. So it's interesting. There was a very famous thing done where they polled all these, you know, this is like, I can't remember when this was, 40s, 50s. They polled all these young moms, do you want a microwave? And this was when microwaves were first invented. And they kind of explain what it is. Hey, it's going to have like radioactive things in it. It's going to be another appliance in your kitchen. And, and, and all, everyone's like, no, I don't want it. I've got a stove and I've got, a, you know, I've got an oven. And what happened as soon as it came out is they sold out immediately. Because as soon as they, someone could actually see what it was, then they realized they needed it. And so what Moses is doing, and this is what, this is what we're trying to do in, in this church and, and in our lives and in our families, is, is what leaders do. And I would say in any, in any situation, if you're discipling someone, what you're doing is you're taking somebody from here and you'd like to see them go there. That's it. That's it. That's all we do. I'm, that's all I do. Uh, we try to take people from here, wherever it is, and we try to tell people why they can't stay here. Like your marriage can't stay here. Your, your struggle with sin can't stay here. Your, your relationship with your mother-in-law can't stay like that. Your eating habits can't stay here, and you have to go here. Now, it's interesting because um, a couple weeks ago, actually two weeks ago, after our first baptism, Sunday, there was a guy out stand, out store, out, uh, outside, <laughs> and uh, and he, he, you know, he was standing there watching me as I'm talking to somebody else, and I can see him out of my peripheral view, and so I'm talking, and, and then I say, hey, man, what's going on? And, uh, and I ask a question that I ask every time I meet somebody, which is, what is your name? And he said, I would like to, be go, I would like to go by John Smith right now. And I thought, this is going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm talking to him, and he, I don't want to get into details, but... but um, um, but he basically begins to share with me some struggles that he has in his life. And I began to realize why he wanted to go by John Smith. Some temptations that he has, some struggles. And he hadn't had been in church in a long time. He came because somebody invited him for baptism. Praise the Lord. Uniquely, we always have people on baptism Sundays, parent commission Sundays, who otherwise wouldn't be in church. And, and you're here today, we're welcome. Um, anyway, um, and so we're talking, and, and he said, you know, he tells me all of his struggles. 
And he said, am I welcome at this church? And I checked for a tape recorder. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and, uh, and, I said, and I said, no, I said, of course you're welcome at this church. I said, we're the church for anybody. We're not the church for everybody. But I said, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to, um, you can come as you are, but you, we don't want you to stay as you are. And we want you to change and conform your life to Scripture. Like, that's the call for all of our lives. And you're going to be very uncomfortable here if you're not willing to conform your life to what Scripture says, because that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're all trying to do. May have different, different temptations, may have different sexually disordered desires, may have different things, demons that we fight, addictions that we battle, but we're trying, sometimes we're only crawling, but we're trying to get from here to there. So that's what Moses does. He says, I want to take you from here to there. Okay, that's verse 22A. We're going to have to pick up the pace, guys. All right, here we go. Um, <laughs> verse 22B, here it is. And they went into the wilderness. If you said, where, you guys are so clever with your series. Where did you get it from? Right there, those three words, into the wilderness. Okay, that's it. That's the end of our series. Uh, they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So they go into the wilderness. Now, this is, you know this, but it just needs to be said. All of the lessons that are really valuable that you'll learn in life, you'll learn in the wilderness. Right, you'll learn when it's, you don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. It's painful, <laughs> right? There's a lot of, but, but all of the trials, all of the tests, all of the temptations, all of the tragedies of our life, they're going to happen in the wilderness. And we, we're told the first thing that happens is they can't find water. Now, let's give them some grace, guys. I mean, we are so spoiled with water. It's like, would you like bottled water? Reverse osmosis bottled water? It's only $4, you know, a bottle. Um, or, or, you know, we, we have the ability to turn on water and, and temperature control it. We have a desire. Would you like bubbles in your water or no bubbles in your water? I mean, we, we, it, we really are so um, separated from what it would be like to not drink water for a couple days. But you're going to see, I mean, they're not going to have water. They're not going to have bread. They're going to kind of start acting crazy. And you might judge them. But think about how you acted during COVID, the beginning of COVID, right? You, were you one of the people that got like the three massive packs of toilet paper from, from Costco and like, you know, at, at the 14 days slow of the curve? It's like, that, that's what happens. People, people freak out. And I want you to see what happens. They go into the wilderness and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink, this is verse 30, 23, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Mara. Mara means bitter. So here, here's part of it, and this is, this is part of what we do every Sunday. It's like, what are we all doing here together? There's a lot of things we're doing here together when we gather to, to look at the word of God and talk together. Part of it is resetting our expectations for what life's about. So you read this, it's like, well, what's, it's like what, what should you expect of life? That it will be hard and God will be good, and that's about all we can tell you for sure. And that you're going to, you know, God forbid, but it's true. You're going to face tests. You're going to face trials. You're going to face tragedies. I mean, one of the interesting things is we had 16 families here this weekend. So 16. And they're all, most of the families are very, very young. You saw some of them up here. They're very young. They've got very young kids. And at the beginning, I didn't even think much of it. I just said, hey, guys, tell your, tell your story a little bit about your kids. And, and, and there were three out of 16 young families. There were three really sad stories already. And you look at people and you think, you can't have a sad story like that. You're too young. You, you shouldn't have a story like that. Your kids are too young. And, and you just realize as you start to talk to people that this is life. Life is hard. There's a lot of trials. There's a lot of tragedies. There's a guy in our church that, you know, right around his 40th birthday, he gets cancer. And I remember meeting with him. And, you know, you can always tell, you know, well, I can't always tell, but you can normally tell, like, are people just saying platitudes like God's good when they don't really believe it? You know, you can, but I could tell the way that this guy was talking, he really believed what he said. And he just said, you know, I, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I didn't want to have cancer. I, I don't like that I have cancer. But I believe God's got a purpose in this. And I believe that this is a trial for me to walk through 
and walk through it with God and walk through it with community. It's like, wow. Wouldn't we all want to be to the place where we have that kind of, I mean, part of life is expectations. Let, let me approach life so that I'm not completely overwhelmed when something happens because I understand that life's hard. And the more people, by the way, the more you're connected to people and to the, the, you know, every time you invite a person in a relationship into your life, you invite suffering into your life. It's one more person who you love, who things will eventually badly happen to at some point or someone they know something will happen to. That's why we need each other. So Moses, he leads them, he leads them into the wilderness and then here's the complaining. It starts early and it goes often just like uh, among Christians. It says this, and the people grumbled. That's the word of complaining. They grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, let's talk about grumbling. Let's talk about complaining. Let's talk about whining a little bit, okay? And we said, I think we said enough, enough good things about kids for the day. Let's say a couple bad things about kids for a second. We love kids. But I mean, what is the, if you're a parent, what is the most annoying sound in the world? Your kid whining, right? It's like, we, we try to tell our kids, we do not speak whinies, okay? <laughs> uh, we, do not, we do not negotiate with terrorists or kids who whine, neither of those, okay, ever. <laughs> and, and that's what happens, kids, kids whine, and you know what the most frustrating thing about whining is? And my wife reminded me of this this week, that, that um, what, what happens with whining is oftentimes your kids will whine, and some of you don't know this if you're not parents yet, but your kids will whine about something you were planning on giving them already. You're like, well, now that you're whining about dessert, you're not getting any, but you know, I wanted to, but thanks for stealing the joy out of me giving this to you because you're whining about it. But, you know, we, we see whining in our kids and we just, I mean, every parent's response is, golly, man, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to do that. But, it, but it's everywhere. Now, do you know that whining is not good for your body? It's interesting. Again, we talked about this. It's always interesting when in singing is good for your body, you know. But God's, God's designed things so that when he tells us not to do something, it actually affects us negatively when we do it, right? That's part of the battle is like God's telling me this for my good. It may feel good to complain, right? It sometimes even feels like a badge of honor to complain, right? Like the two badges of honor is I'm busy and my life stinks, you know, oh, how you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Oh, I'm busy. You know, and then uh, you, let me just, and also let me just tell you how hard COVID's been on me in my situation. And then we try to kind of out hard each other. Well, not as hard on me, you know, and we try to go back and forth. And that's, that's why they actually say that the average person complains, Stanford did a study. The average person complains 15 to 30 times a day, but it increases the more people you talk to during the day. Because I guess as you talk, it's just, it's easier to complain. The, the complaining does a couple things. It shrinks, and I'm not a doctor here, but it shrinks your hippocampus. So your hippocampus is the part of your brain that does problem solving. Think about that for like five years. <laughs> instead of, think about it, like, instead of, because what happens? I would complain about something instead of do what? Try to solve the problem. Try to figure out how God might be at work in this. Uh, it rewires your brain, so it creates neural pathways. Where, you know, like all things, it just makes it easier for you to do it again and again and again. They, they've shown that if you are being complained to, it can actually have, you can actually have your own, there can be brain damage done if you are being complained at for more than 30 minutes. It's just the way, we were not meant to either be the deliverer or the recipient of that much complaining, right? Some of you, that's the issue in your marriage. Stop complaining about each other all the time. Stop complaining about your lives and your situation. There's just, there's no grace in your marriage. There's no joy in your marriage. There's no God is good in your marriage. See, part of what happens with grumbling is we lie about who God is. Like Christians are supposed to be so joyful. Like real, but like so joyful. Like, you know, it's like if I decide to, you know, say someone in the church decides to serve in some area, but they do it grumbling. It's like, no thanks. Unless we really need you. <laughs> 
but I mean, but, but pretty much no thanks. I mean, because it's like, there's something about it that's like, we want to just be incredibly joyful people. We love the Lord, man, you know, and part of grumbling is realizing, you know, part of the reason we don't want to grumble and we're going to be so joyful is like, man, God has done so much in my life. God has saved me from hell, if I'm a Christian, from hell, from judgment, from wrath, from all of the immediate consequences of my sin hitting me. So I don't want to grumble. And so, and, and grumbling does something to the soul. What grumbling does to the soul is it, the only way you can complain is if you think you're the center of the world. I mean, that's the, sa- so every time I complain, I'm like, so give you a really kind of goofy example. I complain when it rains on Sundays. I don't like it. I don't like, I don't like that we can't talk outside. I don't like that I can hear it when I'm preaching. I don't like that there's puddles in our, in our parking lot. I, I, don't, I don't like any of it. And I'm like, what, you know what? Isn't that amazing? It's not about me. <laughs> There, there might be a farmer somewhere else you know, in our city going, please rain today on Sunday, right? It's like, who knows all that God's doing? It, it, what, I've, what I've had to realize is, you know, I'm not the main character in the film. Like I am, you know, if, if it's a Netflix show, I'm season eight, episode 12, and I, and I walk through the episode for a second and I, and I show everybody me in the background. I mean, that's, but right, because what happens? It's like, why do you get upset and it's not, again, there's, there's always, there's a longer conversation to have about this, but why do people get upset when terrible things happen to them? Because they think terrible things shouldn't happen to the main character, right? That's when you watch a show, you go, he can't die. He's the main character. It's like, well, if you're not the main character, your expectations for your life are a little bit different. Like, I just want to, I just want, no matter what happens, I want to point to the main character, Jesus Christ. So what we see here is the people are grumbling. Um, and then look what happens next. They grumble against Moses. Now, this is very interesting, right? This is the first place people grumble. Employees grumble against their bosses. I don't know, who who do you grumble against, right? Children grumble against their parents, complain against their parents. Uh, Athletes grumble against their coaches. Christians grumble against their pastors, right? Um, Citizens grumble against their government. And part of what has to happen with Moses is Moses, and we're gonna see this, Moses has to grow in his pain tolerance, like part of what it means, and I'm speaking to the other end of things, those of you who are leading, part of what you do when you're a leader is you deal with the grumbling of people with grace. You do. And a lot of times what you have to do is absorb it. I remember one time, I, you know, back when we were doing four services, I'm up here and, you know, and it was the nine o'clock service or the 915 service and I'm teaching on something and you know, it's like one of those secondary topics and I'm trying to thread the needle and I go outside and some guy walks up to me afterwards and goes, I completely disagree with everything you said. And I think you're completely wrong. And I thought, could you, could you have emailed me on Monday? <laughs> I, I have to give that same talk three more times. I don't have enough time to fix anything in it. And it was just one of those moments where we actually had a great conversation afterwards and, and he apologized and, we, and, and all of that. And it was just kind of a, a gut reaction thing. But it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, you've got to absorb it. People write goofy, crazy things on Facebook. What do you do? You have to absorb it. You know, the only way, Rick Warren, probably the most famous pastor in America, he said the only way to avoid criticism is just do three simple things. Have nothing, say nothing, and do nothing. And it, but if you'll do that, you won't be criticized. But if you're actually going to take a stand, right? The, the rule in leadership is, is if you call the shots, you have to be willing to take the shots. And what's been interesting is in the midst of COVID, people have not been wanting to make decisions. You know, it's like, because whatever you do, half the people will hate you. You know, and so we've just tried to be with grace and love, with our online community, with our in-person community. We've tried to take stands convictionally, make decisions, and move forward. And so what happens here is they grumble against Moses because they want water. I want you to see what happens next. Verse 25, Moses does what we should do when we're grumbled against. He takes it to the Lord, right? You can't handle all the grumbling. You, you know, you have three, four, or five people that are upset with you. That's a lot of people. He has many more than that, but he says, and he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log, literally a tree. 
is the translation. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So how do you, I'm looking at this text, asking this question together. How do you stop complaining? Here's the number one thing. It's like, how does God stop their complaining? He says, I can take what is bitter in your life and make it sweet. Wow, that's good to know, right? Because everything in your life is either getting bitter or better, <laughs> right? Your marriage is getting better or it's getting bitter. Your relationship with your kids, and believe it or not, that, that, that is a relationship, and it's actually possible to not like your kids. No one ever talks about that, but it's possible. Sometimes a relationship with your kids can get bitter instead of getting better. And, and he says that he can take things, and he can take the bitter, and he can make it sweet. And you go, well, what is that all about? You know? and, and what that's about is that there, that, you know, you got to think about it. What does it mean that God can take the bitter things in your life and make it sweet? It really is ultimately talking about your relationship with God. Your relationship with God can be deeper and sweeter, even through the most bitter things that happen in your life. Because, by the way, whenever you think of an application like that, it has to work. For something to be true, it has to work in the absolute worst situation possible. That's how you know something's true. It works in every situation ever. And that works in every situation. No matter how terrible of a thing that happens to you, it, God can use it to bring you closer to himself. There was a young lady in our church when we first started coming around back at Goler. She came. She was with her husband. He was a, he was a doctor. He was in residency. So they've, they've moved, but they were, they were visiting for the first year or two. And I remember I, introduced, I was introduced to them, and then my friend who, who invited them to church, they were a Christian couple, um, she said, that lady that, that I introduced you to, and told me her name, and I said, yeah. She goes, she lost her leg in a boating accident a few years ago. And uh, she said, when I found that out, this was my friend telling that, she said, I immediately thought, she knows Jesus better than me. Because you can't go through that type of suffering. Losing your leg as a late teenager or early adult and stay faithful to Christ and not have a deep intimacy with Christ. And so, and there's, a, there's two intimacies that flow, the sweetness that flows out of the bitterness. One is your relationship with Christ. The other is your relationship with other Christians. Like every once in a while, people are like, you know, and I'm a strategy guy, I love strategy. But people are, people are asking like, how do you have a great community group? Like, what's the secret? Is it, is it a good host? Is it like, is it, you know, good questions that you ask? Is it good food that you, you know, have? And those are all really helpful things. But if you wanna know what makes a great community group, a great community group is a community group that's had to walk through suffering together. Those are the closest community groups in our church. It's not that they wanted it to be that way. But that happens. Someone gets in a community group and illness and injury hit them or financial calamity hit them. Or they lose, you know, a, a child or, or, or a, a, a parent. And what immediately happens is what would happen in your group. It's like the group's like, what else do we have? We're going to lean into each other. And suffering is going to help us to go even deeper into the sweetness of our relationship with each other. So he takes it. He says, I can make that which is bitter sweet. And then look what happens next. Verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and he tested them. See, God tests us. Satan tempts us. Satan tempts us because he wants us to do something bad. God tests us because he wants us to do something good. And he actually wants to see what's in our hearts. See, we don't know, God knows what's in our hearts. We don't know what's in our hearts, right? I remember sitting on my front porch. This is not a guy in our church, but one of my friends, he went through a terrible divorce. We're sitting on my front porch late one night talking a couple years ago. And I said to him, I just had heard this quote before. And I said, man, I said, you've gone through a divorce this, this year. Um, so I've always heard it said, suffering introduces a man to himself. What's it been like getting to know yourself over this last year? And he said, wow, man, that's the most true thing I've heard anyone say to me in the last year. I've had to completely relearn who I am as I went through something so horrible that I thought could never happen in my life. And therefore, I found out who I really was. And I didn't like a lot of who I found out I was and where I went and all that kind of stuff. 
And so he, God tests us, verse 26, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ears to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. I am the Lord, your healer. Amazing. The second thing God says with, with complaining is I can heal it. Isn't that amazing? First time in the Bible, God's like, I'm a healer. It's, it's in the midst of your grumbling and your complaining because sometimes what we're grumbling and complaining about is a bunch of things from our past. I mean, and, and hear me say that. I mean, there, some of you had some terrible, terrible things happening in the past. You know, I, I've had people, I remember, I won't go into detail. I, I, had a, I had a guy in college ministry confess something that his dad did to him. And it was like, he just told me this. He told other people and got help for it and stuff, but, but basically had told me this. And part of what you need to realize, when, when ter- so the cross does a couple things. The cross forgives you of your sins and cleanses you from the sins others have done against you. You know, it's like, okay, I've got a place to look. It's like, look, someone did something really terrible to me. Well, here, guess what? Uh, either Jesus Christ died for it or they'll pay for it forever in hell. And let's get you some healing. Let's get you some forgiveness. This is, this is the wing of the church that says, let's care and let's counsel and let's comfort. And there's the whole healing ministry of the church that comes along. Now, God doesn't necessarily, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes God heals us and leaves a scar, right? It's like we're healed, but there's a scar. It's like there's still, I still can see it. I still think about it every once in a while. But what God does at salvation is he heals our soul. And what he wants to do is begin to heal us. And he will heal us completely when we die and go to heaven. But it's an amazing thought that in the midst of our whining and our complaining, God says, I'll make what's bittersweet and I can heal you. But then look at chapter 16. They have to deal with another trial while they're in the wilderness. It says this, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation, see what you see is that grumbling grows, complaining is contagious. It went from some people were yelling against Moses to the whole congregation. This is what happens, right? And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, verse three. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. So here's what happens. This is good to know because we, we get this picture with Israel of, of how do we deal with, with uh, complaining? What happens with complaining? We tend to complain when we live in the past and we fantasize about how good things were beforehand. It's not even true. Like they're saying, that, oh, wasn't it awesome when we sat around and we ate and drank, you know, back in Egypt? It's like, uh, yeah, you had food there, but you're forgetting this whole idea of bondage and beatings, <laughs> You know, you're forgetting that you worked seven days a week that you were enslaved, but this is what happens, right? What happens every time we go back into some sin that we've struggled with in the past that we told the Lord we would never do again, right? Whenever you told the Lord you'd never do that again was the moment when you realized what it really was. You're like, this is sinful, this is hurtful, this is harmful, this is dangerous, this is unbiblical, this is unhelpful. And then what happens is when you consider going back into it or you do go back into it, how how does it look in your mind when you think back to it? Only the positive natures of it, right? Only the good things, until, of course, the pleasure's over. Then you're like, why did I do this again? We keep looking back. So they, they fantasize, oh, wasn't it so great in Egypt? Here's what happens. We know what happens. What happens somewhere between usually years three and 10 in marriage? You start not liking your marriage very much, oftentimes, and you start thinking how good it was when you were single. That happens to a lot of people. It's like, actually, no, look back. You weren't happy then. Or people, when they have their, their, their kids and their kids get tough, what do people start thinking when they have all their kids and it's overwhelming and, you know, one spouse is staying home and now they're trying to, you know, provide an income and one income for four people instead of two incomes for two people and they're not sleeping. What happens? What do people say? Life was better before we had kids. It's like, no, it wasn't. 
We just look back and we fantasize and we believe it's like selective memory or something. We look to the past and that's not even reality. The reason that we are so ungrateful is we're either looking to the past and it's not, we're not realizing it, how, how terrible it was, um, or we're looking to the future and just hoping for what's next. We're unable to just be thankful for what we have in the moment. We should just be an incredibly part of what I hope, not just our church, but our Christians would be. It's just like, we would be such a grateful people. We are just not, we do not live in a society that's very grateful. Like we're coming up on Thanksgiving, but I don't know what everybody's thanking everybody for. I mean, I don't, most people, if you don't believe in God, who are you thanking? I don't know. But there's just, we just need to be an incredibly grateful culture. Do you know if you grew up, just on a basic level, if you grew up 200 years ago, 1820, you would feel like it was medieval times. <laughs> right? There would be no technology. Everything would be by candlelight. The number one smell would be horse poop. True story. The number one smell in sight would be horse poop and horses everywhere because that's how you got around. It's the only way you got around. There's no air conditioning. There's no indoor plumbing. There's no heating and air. I mean, it's just, and we just, we just need to be so grateful. And it feels good to be grateful. It really does. It, feel, it feels good to be small. It's like, why do people go to the Grand Canyon? The answer, to feel small. That's why. That's the answer. They don't know that. That's the answer. That's why you go see big things, to feel small. And you feel best when you feel small, yet we try our whole lives to feel inflated. You feel best when you feel small. God is big. He created the whole world. I'm so glad I get to be in season 12, episode two. <laughs> That's it. So they're grumbling. They're not thankful for what they have. Then they get mad at leadership again. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. Moses is like, no, I didn't. You know, I would, I would have told you guys to go stand back for a picture in the Red Sea if I was going to do that, you know. <laughs> I was, uh, verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And that's amazing. God always responds to our grumbling with grace. Amazing. They, we, they grumble, but they still get grace. Moses tends to be the one gets more frustrated. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may, here it is again, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What we see here, and this is an important principle in, because part of what this is, is how do you deal with suffering, right? It's complaining, but they're suffering, so they're complaining. One of the things you realize is, and God's gonna do this, he's gonna give us just enough for today. When you think of manna, manna, think of the grace of God. That's what it is. It's the grace of God. We don't deserve it. It comes down to heaven for us. And here's a very important principle. God only gives us enough grace for today. That's it. When COVID happened, everyone thought, well, well what if and or but? It's like, no, God doesn't give grace for if and ors and buts. You know, God gives grace for today and for right now. And what will happen, and this is a really helpful principle, when you're suffering, you shorten your time frame. That's what you do. And the more intense you're suffering, the shorter your time frame needs to be. So, you know, a, a nice older lady in our church called me. This is probably a year ago. She said, Pastor Kyle, she wanted to talk to me. She said, Pastor Kyle, I got to get this cast off my leg. And we started, I said, you know, she said, I can't remember exactly, but I, I can't do six more weeks of this. And she told me I was itchy and, you know, you just know how terrible it is being a cast. And she says, I can't do it anymore. I said, could you do three weeks? She said, no. <laughs> okay, honest. Could you do one week? I don't think so. Could you make it to tomorrow? I can make it to tomorrow. So we talked and we prayed and I said, that's it, that's what we're gonna do, right? When you, when you shorten the time frame, you have to, sometimes the, the shortest time frame has to be one day. God's gonna give me enough grace to get through this day of parenting. God's gonna give, I can't think about how I'm gonna do this for five more years. God's gonna give me enough grace to get through my job today. This is, Jesus has the same thing, right? Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. 
So this idea that the manna comes down, but then look, look at all of these really interesting instructions. On this, verse five of chapter 16. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So uh, we're gonna be introduced to the principle of the Sabbath. It's interesting, God's gonna teach them how to do the Sabbath, train them in the Sabbath before he even gives them the law. He's gonna train them and then give them the law. Verse six, so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling. Now look at this, you're grumbling against the Lord. Moses is like, listen who it's ultimately against. Look at this, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble second time, grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And this is, this is why it's like, well, why is complaining a big deal? It's like, is it, you know, why are we talking about it? Does it deserve a whole sermon? It's like, well, it gets three chapters in the book of Exodus. The reason that grumbling is a sin, is, or is sin and is terrible is it's ultimately against the Lord. You might be like, well, I'm just upset that life's like this. It's like, well, you're upset with God. Well, I'm just mad at the structure of reality. Well, you're upset with God. Well, I'm just mad that I'm here right now. Well, God put you in this place in this time. And again, I'm not getting into every deep conversation about sinfulness and sovereignty and all that. But at the end of the day, part of what lets you just be grateful is go, all right, God, kind of back to the story I told you about the guy with cancer. All right, Lord, you have a purpose in this. And also to realize this, complaining makes everything worse. It's like, go, I mean, this is how you know something doesn't work. Go live it out. Because here's what complaining does. It becomes bitter. Go ahead. See how that works for you. It's like, it's like, it's sinful, it's wrong, and it makes everything worse. You know, you, you, you see some, like, you know, you see some mom or dad die, and it's terrible. And so, you know, the only thing that makes something bad, worse when a mom or dad dies? All the kids fighting with each other. Because everybody's bitter, and everybody's complaining about things, and everybody's envious. It's like, golly, you don't want that. You got to realize it makes things worse. And so the, the manna comes down. Look at the instructions, verse nine. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Again, the grace of God. As soon as Aaron spoke, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And sometimes we can only see God most clearly when we're in our suffering. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the ground. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. In the Hebrew, it's literally Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, say to them at twilight, or, or, or verse 15, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Now, manna literally means, that's literally what it means, what is it? So they just named it. Like, what is it? We'll call it what is it? What is it? That's what they called it. Um, so, for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And now this is really interesting. So we'll just talk about this for a little bit of time we have left. But as God teaches them to not complain, which is a lesson we all need to learn, he's going to go after their time and their money. Wow, this is relevant. Because when you read manna, think money. It's all they had. They think resources, but this is, this is their possessions. And God's going to, to, to create systems that's going to make them have to trust him in regards to their time and their money. Look at this, verse 16. 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, which is about three to four pounds, according to the number of persons that each has in his tent. So he, every person's got a unique situation. God meets that unique situation. Verse 17, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So the people, people who try to keep getting more never seem to have enough. Still happens today. Um, verse 19, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. So he gets these really specific instructions because basically here's the whole idea. I don't want you to store up a bunch of manna, like go to Costco and just get like 15 loaves of bread and throw it in your freezer because you're not gonna have to trust me anymore. But if you just eat enough and it's gone and you gotta wake up the next, no one wants to live like this, right? We don't wanna live like this. It's the, it's the life of daily dependence on God. God, if you don't show up, I'm not gonna eat today. And I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna try to save extra just so I feel good. And I know I've got something. Look what happens here. Verse 20, this is what we do. But they did not listen to Moses. They said, I'm unique. I'm an exception. I'm the snowflake. You don't understand my situation. It says this, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now, let's just be clear. The Bible in general is not against saving. But what was interesting here is, is he, there's a principle, because Proverbs talks about saving, Proverbs talks about leaving an inheritance to your kids, but I was not against saving, right? If you actually don't save money, here's what happens to you. You become a burden on other people, and that's not helpful. So you want to be able to save money, so when something happens to you, you can, that's, that's one of the principles. That's why we say, give first honor God, save second to be wise, live off the rest to teach yourself contentment. But we're learning something here, and this is one, one thing I've learned in 15 years of ministry, is the number one reason I think genuine Christians don't give but most do give. But if there's, if there's Christians who don't give to the kingdom of God, it's usually not because they're stingy, although some are. It's more because they're scared. And people go, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do. I, I've just gotten used to saving this. And so what people is, people have large savings account, lots of money in the stock market, no investment in the kingdom. And what was interesting, there was like a three to five week window when COVID first happened, when the stock market went really down. I think there's a connection. Well, we actually know historically when the stock market's down, church attendance is up everywhere. It's really interesting. And I think what's happened is when the stock market went down, people had to go, anyone who had any kind of Christian worldview at all probably had some thought of, am I investing in the wrong place? Maybe I need to diversify my portfolio a little bit more. Maybe not just the stock market, but also the kingdom of God. And so what we see is, we see that they ended up being um, not just more stingy, it was actually more scared. Now, I, and I thought about this, you know, for, I've been a Christian for 18 years and, and I actually, I thank God for this. My youth pastor, brand new Christian, my youth pastor taught me, you make a dollar, you give a dime. You make 10 bucks, you give a dollar. You make a thousand, you give a hundred, you get it. So I just thought, so I just say this with humility because I was, I didn't know any different. This is the only Christian I know. I've tithed my whole life. And so what's interesting is I, now 18 years of that. So what you do is if you took 18 years of my salary, averaged it, took 10% away or more, and, and that'd be how much money I gave, which I have no idea how much it is. But what I thought before is, what if I could have it all back? I mean, it's a lot, I mean it'd be a lot, of, a lot of money to me. Um, it's like, what would that look like to have all that back? It's like, you know what? I don't want it back, genuinely. Because I'm excited about the ministry. I'm excited about investing in the kingdom of God. I'm excited about fueling and funding ministry. I'm excited about the kingdom impact that it has have and that it will have. I'm excited about the rewards in heaven. Connected, you know? I mean, that, the Bible talks about, you know, store up for, it appeals to your desire to save. Store up for yourselves <laughs> in heaven. 
where moth and rust do not destroy. So it's kind of like, you could almost say it's save, save, live. <laughs> You're either saving in heaven, saving, saving on earth, or, giving, or, or uh, living to teach yourself contentment. So the first thing they have to learn is they have to learn uh, with money and manna. The second thing they're gonna have to learn is rest. Look at uh, verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So he's teaching this principle, it's, and it's labor creates leisure, right? That's the principle. We don't, we don't understand that principle in our society much anymore, but labor creates leisure, right? We can't just have a life of leisure. It's not even good for you. Um, but you can't just have a life of labor. You need labor that creates leisure. And what's interesting, a lot of people can't rest on the seventh day because they haven't worked hard on the first six days. And actually, you gotta, sometimes you've got to work extra hard six days a week so you can rest on the seventh day. That's why, hey, you've got to go, you've got to grab twice as much bread, you've got to come back. But here's the principle. When you rest, it gives you an opportunity to reflect. That's the principle. And a lot of us, we're not very good at resting, right? We, resting is not stare at your phone for three hours. I mean, resting is not just one season tonight of this show, okay? That, that's not resting because, I mean... It's something, you know, passively taking in content. I mean, it's something, but, but true rest has this idea in it of reflection as well. And so what should happen is one day a week, you need a day that looks different. That's rest and worship today. It, part, of, part of what a Sunday is, is even if it's an hour, even if it's 15 minutes, it's thinking on your last week and thinking on your life and just being grateful. All right, our marriage isn't the greatest ever, but thank God we've made some progress. Because sometimes we just need a moment to go, where is God working? Where is God working in my kids' lives? Where is God? Where are we financially? Where are we in my relationship? Where, where are we in COVID? It's like, well, we don't know. You, don't, you won't know unless you slow down and rest. And we rest so that we can reflect and we reflect so that we can be grateful. And we're grateful so we won't complain. So he built in this whole idea of rest. Here's what he says. But people can't rest, right? Look at verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people continue to check their email. It's right in the, it's right in the Hebrew. <laughs> Some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. They, they, they tried, they, 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 uh, there's nothing to be found. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? You know, it's interesting. The, the, when I think about the greatest example of the power of rest is, I mean, honestly, I think about Chick-fil-A. I think about, you know, as, as much as many of us are frustrated on Sundays when we're traveling and they're not open. <laughs> but no, I, I, I love when I see I just think, it, you know, I don't know all the statistics on this. I've read it before, but something like the average Chick-fil-A store does like five times better than the average McDonald's store. Even though McDonald's is open seven days a week and they're open five or six days a week. And to me, there's nothing as powerful as, as on a Sunday when everything else is bustling and booming, seeing all of the lights off at Chick-fil-A. It's just like this big symbol, our trust is in here ultimately. Our hope is in here ultimately. We're not trusting what everybody else is trusting in. There's conviction underneath what we do. So we, we're, we shut our stores down a seventh of the year and we do better than most other, chick, or most other fast food uh, restaurants in the whole world. It's just, it's just a great principle of rest. <laughs> Heard the Chick-fil-A chuckle over there, whatever that was. Um, and so um, let, let's continue on. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, verse 29. The Sabbath is a gift. 
Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let none of you go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Um, and then verse 31 describes the, um, the, the man again. Verse 32, uh, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer uh, of it be kept throughout your generation so that they see the bread on which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he goes on there. And what happens, and I won't read it to you, but here's what happens in, ver- in chapter 17. They complain again about water again. And if you read, the, it's only the first eight verses. If you read it, what happens is it goes from complaining to quarreling, which is what happens. This is why we have to deal with complaining because what happens is if we don't, um, if you don't deal with complaining, I'm just thinking in the church, then you start having quarreling and faction groups, right? <laughs> and strife and lack of unity and church splants, <laughs> right? When they split and plant somewhere else. It's like, and that's not what we want. And that, that's a terrible witness to the world. And so what ends up happening to happen at the very end is Moses has to strike this rock for the water to come out. You can read the story. And it's a very, it's a very fascinating story because it tells us a couple things about Christ. First of all, Christ is in all of these stories if you look for him. Is not Jesus Christ and his cross the log that was thrown into what is bitter to make it sweet, right? I mean, literally it says in the Hebrew, it, literally it says it's a tree. Well, the tree is the symbol of the cross in the Bible. So how do we know that God, how do we actually know historically that God can take anything bitter and make it sweet? We look at the most bitter event in human history, the cross, and we see the sweetest thing come out of it, the salvation of any sinner who would believe and repent. That's actually the most comforting thing is that God took a bitter event and made it sweet. Well, then you look at the bread come down from heaven and Jesus says, I am, right? He actually says in John 6, I am actually the bread that comes down from heaven. That gives you way more than, than the manna did. I give you identity. I give you fulfillment. I give you forgiveness. I give you purpose. I give you community. I give you relationship. And then Jesus Christ is, it, Paul the apostle says this. It's, I think it's in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, Jesus Christ, speaking of the story of Moses, he said, Jesus Christ is the rock that was struck so that we could have water. And what's interesting is the Bible ends with this invitation. It ends with the invitation to, to anybody who's thirsty to come to Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is I just want to give us a moment, if you'll close your eyes, to respond. Because I think when it comes to complaining, there's a couple things. First of all, I think that we complain because we don't believe that God cares and is in control. And so if wherever you are, I was talking to a lady after the first service and she was telling me about a really difficult situation she's in. And part of, part of the grace of God is realizing God cares and God's in control in your marriage. God cares and God's in control in your finances. God cares and God's in control with your kids, with your relationships. I think the other thing is just, just to take some moments to say some things you're thankful for. Just even right now, just in your heart, what are some things you are grateful for? They could be spiritual things, forgiveness. They could be simple things. A warm house tonight as you go to bed. And if you'll just continue to be grateful. And then I think for all of us, taking those moments of complaining and turning them into confession. When we complain, we talk about something external. When we confess, we talk about something internal. And every time we're prone to complain, we need to probably turn into our own heart and say, Lord, would you help me? Would you help me not to be so self-centered? Would you help me not to be so self-focused? Would you help me to love other people? Would you help me to do things with joy instead of grumbling? Lord, that's our prayer. Our prayer is you would raise up here at church that joyfully does things. That's the opposite of grumbling. We joyfully do it. We joyfully pray. We joyfully share. We joyfully disciple. We joyfully give. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Lord, we wanna be a giving people because Jesus is our joyful savior. We pray all this in his name, amen.